JMS Podcast with Jorge M. Sanchez. How's it going, people? It's been uh, another great Sunday, hopefully, to most of you. Well, hopefully to all of you, but we cannot all have great Sundays. I'm glad you're here. If you're tuning in for the first time, you have a great guest. Our guest today is Wally Schnally. He is, uh, I believe he's a worldwide renowned drummer. I mean, this guy has been on tour and, and quite uh, literally on the other side of the planet. And I'm lucky enough to have him here as a guest. I went over to his studio over there in Fremont and we had a great talk. And there was a lot to digest. There was a lot to really take in. And I think uh, if you're a musician, especially if you're a drummer, I think you would appreciate a lot of what we had to say. And a lot of uh, great advice that he picked up that, that I think you could really apply to yourself. And even, even if you're not a musician, I think you still apply it to yourself. Whether you're an artist, a poet, a writer, a filmmaker, uh, did I get everyone? I don't know. Anything creative, I guess. Maybe, maybe like a like a hat maker. That's pretty creative. Or a uh, uh, let's see, a gardener. Gardeners are definitely creative, without a doubt. Uh, Probably like one of the first uh, creative people, maybe. Like back in the day, back in caveman times. So like, hey, I'm going to make this little little thing out of this this this, this land. going to plant flowers. That's interesting. I should look into that. The history of gardening. Where did it start from? What was the whole idea of manipulating a section of the earth to make it something visually appealing to the gardener? Yeah. I don't know. I went on tangent. I'm sorry. But stay tuned. Wally Schnally, great conversation. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on SoundCloud. You can follow this podcast on Facebook. I, uh, I was about to say iTunes again, but actually I meant to say Instagram and Twitter. Please visit the JMSPodcast.com website. A lot of great content in there. Some new stuff. I just finished filming and releasing a sound session. I managed to uh, get together with Jake Wickman. Uh, these days, he has a trio now. He has um, he has a bassist and he has a percussionist who's William Lineberry. His bassist is Noah. I'm gonna mess up his name. I better go look it up. But uh, we filmed it in downtown Mountain View, and uh, we. Uh, it was a hard shoot, honestly. Like for for someone like me, uh, I wouldn't say I'm the best cinematographer around, but that really put my skills to the test. I believe. I mean, it looks basic, uh, it looks simple, but trust me, because uh, usually I tell the uh, musicians to choose the locations, kind of doing this thing where, uh, where you know, I'm trying to capture them in their natural habitat, somewhere somewhere they feel comfortable playing an acoustic song in public. Uh, with no microphones, no nothing. Uh, okay, the bassist's name is Noah Laniakia. Noah, if you're listening, I'm sorry, I, I butchered your last name. But people gotta know who you are, man. You're you're, you're talented. Uh, so Jake Wickman, he decided to film this in a tunnel. It's like one of those tunnels in downtown Mountain View. And as soon as I walked in, I'm like, oh, this is gonna be trouble. Cause not only did I have just one, cause usually I depend on one light source. Uh, in this case, when you're in the tunnel, you got two light sources because you got the sunlight on both sides of the entrances. 
And on top of that, in the middle of the tunnel where we were pla uh, planning to film uh, his acoustic set, uh, it is dark, very dark. And so I was like, okay, how am I going to do this, right? So uh, I mean, he's like, all right, first things first, uh, I put on my 24 millimeter on my Canon Rebel T5i. And I was like, okay, it's j just to give a bit space so it does not look so claustrophobic. Uh, I went manual, focus. I went manual on everything because I'm like, ah, I'm really going to get... <laughs> I'm going to have to control everything. Um, and I uh, lowered the ISO uh, because I'm not really a fan of, of too much uh, post-production when it comes to coloring. I'm not really a fan of it. I, I really love uh, natural lighting. It's one of the reasons why a lot of... A lot of cinematographers who work for me, they they go kind of crazy when we collaborate, because I'm like, hey, no, forget the, forget the lighting equipment. Let's just rely on the sun. Let's rely on these lights. You know, that that's already. Uh, let's rely on these practicals, as they're called. But anyway, so there I was. I'm like, all right, how can I stage this to make it look interesting and so on and so. Uh, and uh, Jake Wickman and his band did an amazing job. And uh, yeah, I think, but I think we pulled it off. You can check out the video on YouTube. Just search for the JMS Podcast on YouTube, Sound Sessions, or you could just go to the JMS Podcast website at jmspodcast.com. It's posted there too. It has already reached more than 100 views uh, for something like this, like uh, my little podcast uh, organization. It's a big deal. I'm happy. 100 views? Yeah, I don't need a million. I just need 100, and I'm like, yep, I think we did a good job. He performs a song called, I should probably look that up, uh, let's see. It's a song called "Don't Want to Say Goodbye," and uh, he did he did a great job. Uh, shout out for Jonathan Olivo, a good friend of mine, for doing sound. And yeah, overall, I'm I'm proud of it. Uh, and it was a good challenge, and I think overall it, it came out pretty good. All right, eh, I had an interesting experience that happened to me. Um, not really experience; it's just a realization. I went. Uh, I found this uh, great new movie theater to settle in here in the South Bay. Um, uh, it's nice. I'm not gonna tell what it is, or where it's at. I like to keep it a secret because it has the most comfortable chairs, and there's nothing else that ruins a theater experience than people. I hate being in a movie theater with like lots of people. It depends though. If it's like a midnight screening for like a horror film or a comedy, maybe that's different. But for the most part, I like my space. I'm a, I'm a real emotional guy. I, I move my body depending on what's going on. If I'm if I'm fully engaged, it's like I'm like all over the place. And I found this great place, and I went to go see a documentary on cats, cats in Istanbul, right? And I was like, huh? Uh, okay, uh, that's an interesting concept. People filming cats in Istanbul, and uh, I went in expecting to find a lot of lonely women you know a lot of lonely cat women went in there nope there was a cup there was nothing but couples young couples to make it worse and every freaking minute or so when there's a cute cat on screen which the whole entire documentary was pretty much a whole bunch of cats that were cute most of the time uh, there's a lot of oohs, ah, ahs, oh, that's so cute. I'm telling you, those guys were smart. They took their girls out to see that documentary, and they know, they know that they're going to get some extra points. Because, come on, uh, if your woman is into that, that's the perfect documentary to see. And I was like, yeah, there's no lonely woman here. And then I realized, holy shit, I'm the lonely guy. I'm the lonely cat guy. I don't have a cat, 
but they don't know that. All they see is this balding, uh, uh, big bearded uh, Latino man, well, kinda, and uh, wearing a green taxi driver jacket, looking creepy, with extra butter in his popcorn. I'm like, oh my god, I'm that guy. I'm that guy in this screening. And I was like, ugh. It was an okay film, though. It was, I mean, after the 10th cat, I'm like, really? This is this is the entire documentary? We're going from cat to cat? Are, are we getting all thousands of cats in Istanbul? Anyway, moving on. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. I know, I know, I know. There goes Jorge being a hipster. Watching cat documentaries. There goes Jorge the hipster. He doesn't watch a doc. He does not watch documentaries on Netflix. He goes out to a movie theater and watches cat documentaries. Jorge, you're being a hipster. Like ah, I know. Ugh. To make it worse, I'm, I I I caught on to a new uh, hobby. I'm collecting, uh, believe it or not, uh, cassette tapes. Uh, that's right. Usually I collect vinyl. W- one of my favorite places to to buy uh, vinyl records here and. San Jose is at uh, Needle to the Groove in downtown San Jose. And I pass by the cassettes. And out of curiosity, more like a joke, I'm like, I should buy one, right? Like, if I have a friend over and as a joke, I pull out a cassette tape and be like, oh, check this this old uh, musical technology. So I, I bought it. I, I And uh, I have a vinyl record that has a cassette tape uh, player attached to it. And I was blown away. Jesus Christ. The, the sound on these cassettes are are actually in most cases better than the downloads I I, I, I don't know how to explain it and it's like a, it was a Patsy Cline uh, cassette album and it blew me away I'm like whoa who is this who, this voice the songwriting it's like whoa and I went back and I bought another cassette tape and I'm like oh my god I'm a full hipster now not only am I collecting vinyl records and CDs now I'm buying cassette tapes. But I like them. You just pop them in. You don't have to worry to be uh, to like switch songs, right? Because I'm impulsive when it comes to CDs. Within the 10 seconds, if, if I don't like a certain groove, I, I change the song. I don't appreciate the music that much if I have my CDs on. So if you put in a cassette tape, you don't have an option but to listen to the, to the entire thing. Which is great for jazz uh, albums. I got myself a, a cassette tape of Coltrane Live at Birdland. And wow, it's an amazing album. Uh, came out in the '60s. I mean, the first three songs were recorded at Birdland. The other ones were recorded in some other studio. But man, uh, you just pop that thing in there. You get to work. Have that in the background. You don't have to worry about uh, advertisements from Pandora or some shit. Uh, and you, yeah, you just let it play, and then you appreciate it because, uh, especially with jazz, it's, it's it's dense music that you really gotta you really gotta get into. You, you really gotta make a get lost in it to find a way into it if that makes sense to you so yeah man I'm buying cassettes now uh, mostly jazz cassettes and uh, fucking A hate me all you want for being a super hipster but uh, I'll take it I'll, I'll take those labels for now although deep inside I am the farthest away from a hipster uh, considering I'm a very bitter bitter person because uh, I've never seen a bitter hipster before, really. I don't know. If you have, let me know. You can email me at jamspodcast at gmail.com. All right, enough about that. 
Um, another news. Oh my God! I, I just learned today that Chuck Berry passed away, which is and on Thursday James Cotton passed away. Um, and um, yeah, I mean I'm sad, but I'm happy. They lived long lives. They they've made uh, great um, legacies behind them. And uh, yeah, I mean Chuck Berry died and. Uh, I, I got my, my Chuck Berry CD popped into my car and I went for a long drive. I listened to the entire album uh, and uh, during the sunset and wow, it was, it was really a, it, it's almost like a, like a distant friend passing away almost because I was into Chuck Berry at a young age. Uh, even before I, I realized it was, uh, it was some, I mean, it's rock and roll, but with, with the bluesy fundamentals, like most rock and roll and all it's debatable sometimes whether he is the guy that made rock and roll possible you know some say it's Bo Diddley others can trace it back to Fats Domino but he's really he really brought it out to the mainstream um I, I know some some of you uh, music enthusiasts are like no it was Elvis it was Elvis Pre- fuck you and your Elvis alright seriously I mean Elvis did great things for what it was but you can't compare uh, the talent and, and songwriting and, and blues compositions like Chuck Berry and others before him. So I don't know. Uh, big res- I guess I'll be listening to Chuck Berry and James Cotton all week. Alright, anyway. I guess ready for, for Wally Schnally? I am. Uh, I, I was nervous uh, going in. Uh, he is a drummer. One thing I learned growing up about uh, drummers is you don't not mess with the drummers. They pack a punch. Uh, if you know, you know, drummers like Keith Moon, uh, uh, Bonham, uh, Ginger Baker is that you don't fuck with drummers. Don't even look them in the eye cause they bite. So I, I did not know what I was getting myself into, you know, especially with the jazz drummer. I'm like, uh, not really the biggest jazz guy. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Wally Schnally, uh, a great, great person. Very nice. Very humbling, and quickly put me at ease, and we had a great conversation. So, without much further ado, let's get on with our conversation with Wally Schnally. But, uh, Wally Schnall, thank you uh, for. Uh, did I pronounce that right? I'm no. sorry. That's why I have a tattoo this right here that says it rhymes. Yeah. Wally Schnally. Schnally. Yeah. Wally, Wally Schnally. Schnally. I, yeah. I already fucked up this interview. I'm sorry. Okay. Can I walk out of the studio yeah, and walk back do, in? Do over. Do over. Do yeah. over? Yeah. Uh, Wally Schnally. Is that Scandinavian? No, it's German. German. Yeah, it's okay. German. So I'm like, my dad, on my dad's side, I'm German. And, and then uh, the other side is my mom's side. Uh, quarter Hispanic and rest um, European mud. <laughs> Wait, how did that happen? Um, how did that happen? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're, you're a quarter Hispanic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My um, her, my great grandfather on my mother's side, his name is Agras, and um, which is sounds Spanish to me, but he he came out of Mexico, and uh, actually owned a lot of land up, up here back in the day, and uh, um, and so uh, and then so that was my grandmother's side. And then my grandfather was, as I said, you know, um, European mutt, a lot of a lot of mixed. And my father's side was German, so here I am today. What line of work was he in? 
My father? Or, yeah. Uh, my father worked at uh, United Airlines for many, many, many years, yeah. As a pilot? No, no, he was in uh, sheet metal and, and um, you know, uh, building the planes, fixing the planes. Oh, uh, wow. So he's part of, the, like, the union and everything yeah, like that? Yeah, 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 for, for uh, you know, I don't know how many decades he was, you know, commuting to San Francisco to work at SFO and, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, um, coming home and driving me to a drum lesson. <laughs> <laughs> was he a musician on the on the side? No, uh, my mom played organ, and uh, um, you know, like the hobbyist. What in fact, this organ that's we're sitting in my studio now, and that, this organ to our right was yeah. in my parents' living room as I grew up, and uh, we had a couple organs, and uh, my mom and my sister played um, keyboards as hobbyists. They never really went on and took it out seriously, right. but um, and my dad was way into he as he liked to say he played the stereo. <laughs> he had his Heathkit stereo and, and, and played records, and so there was a lot of music yeah. in the house growing up. Yeah. Right. So he was like the precursor to a DJ, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But the organ, man, that's always a fascinating um, instrument to me, especially in the history of rock and roll. Uh, some classic rock and roll songs got the organ right there in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I love how the animals use it once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a, it's a great sound, and and, in, and on the jazz side too, it just became. Um, I mean, it was a thing that take took over and. Um, was used to create the sound of a big band with a trio. When, you know, back in, in like in the fifties, I guess it was, there was like um, musician unions um, putting up a protest to organs because they were putting like a lot of musicians out of work because they get a big sound out of out of fewer people. You know? Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the bass player, the guy's walking with his pedals, right? You know, yeah. so there's a bass player who's not working that night. You know, so <laughs> it was controversy. But that, what a great sound and that 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 organ trio. You know, bass, guitar, um, and organ. Excuse me, not bass. Organ, drums, and guitar, or sax, and it's yeah. just a. I mean, I love playing in that environment, but it's a classic sound. That explains too. a lot, you know, because in classic silent film uh, era, they had the organ player. Yeah, a, that a was lot precursor of time. to this. Yeah, and it was because they could do so many sounds. With one guy sitting, yeah. they could do the yeah. whole show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the pipe organ thing. Yeah. So, why in particular did your mother pick up the organ? Um. Boy, boy, it was I was so young. Why did she start? Um, I don't remember. I think we we he, we had friends that had organ. I mean, that's like a nineteen late fifties, early sixties kind of thing to do. Have an organ in the living room, and it was like entertainment. My parents would have parties, and people could over, and you know, there was some people, other people that played organ and would play, and yeah. and they'd hang. Um, so I think it was just a more of a social thing more than anything else, you know, and and. Uh, um, like I said, at one point there was this organ and another one in our in our living room, and it was you know a small little house in Santa Clara. So that was take, that 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 was a large portion of the living room, two organs, um, and um, and I used to go with her to her lessons, and and I really wanted to play, um, or you know I was intrigued by the possibility. I was too young, at the, you know, perceived to be too young at the time, and then um, like uh, what age are we talking about? I'm talking about you know second third grade, you know, so uh, so I was, like six seven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I decided, actually, um, through listening to popular music, I wanted to play either drums or electric guitar. And it wasn't just guitar, but it was electric guitar, right? Yeah. And, and, um, and then, so my parents were supportive of that and said that I could um, I could learn to play drums in the fifth grade because they were school bands and you could learn to play drums, right? And um, so I waited patiently for those two years to get into to band at school. And I remember this pretty vividly. It was the first day of band, and we were sitting in a semicircle around the uh, teacher, and he was going down his clipboard, not even looking up at the students, just calling off names. And finally got to me, 
And he said, you know, Wally Schnally. And, and uh, you know, they were asking what instruments you want to play. And, and I just proudly said, drums. And, and from without looking up from his clipboard, he just said, sorry, we have too many drummers. You play clarinet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I, was, I, didn't, I was quiet and shy and whatever at the time, so I didn't say anything. I just was crushed, you know, and went home and told my parents. They allowed me to quit band because I really, I mean, I mean, I'd be a sax player now if I'd taken it, but I didn't really want to play clarinet. So then they got me private lessons, um, and and which turned out to be really a blessing because yeah. otherwise I would have learned from the music teacher who played trumpet. And, and you know, the next year in sixth grade, I, I joined band again now that I had a year of lessons under my belt and, you know, quickly became the head of the percussion section because the guys that got to be drummers in fifth grade didn't really know <laughs> they, were, they were just kind of treading water getting through the year you know so so it was it was a it was a blessing that it took a left turn like that for me well that's interesting so you were very determined to be a drummer oh yeah yeah who were who was your hero to be like i gotta be a drummer no matter what well again you know if we talked about the uh, um you know the social thing and the organ happening in the living room and stuff there there was when I was young, my dad, parents had a party and they had a friend's band from work. And um, I remember seeing a red sparkle drum set in our living room that just looked like the coolest thing ever and sounded great. And it just, you know, from that moment, I think I lit a fire and I really wanted to do it. And it's like I tell some of my students now, to, even today, that, you know, still when I watch a drummer play, it's like the coolest thing ever. You know, it still inspires me. And, and, and I'm, though I can do it, I still am you know, befuddled to how it happens, you know, watching drummers do what they do. And so I, 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 I lit a spark, and then, you know, through listening to popular music, I, that, that stayed true. And, and so then, as I said, in, in junior high, I joined the band. It was all about being drums, continued taking lessons. Um, I got into high school and was in rock bands and, and marching. I was in drum corps, Vanguard Drum and Bugle Corps. We marched all over the, you know, the country and stuff. And then... Um, I got out of um, high school and was just about all about being a drummer. Went to a, a couple of years, about a year and a half of, of uh, junior college at Foothill and um, found that I wanted money. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which is so, very important. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> yeah. At that age. so I, I quit school and got a job. And that really, that was where my biggest misstep in life, I think. What kind um, of job was it? Um, well, you know what? I started, I got, so this is... Um, late 70s um, in Silicon Valley and there was a lot of um, electronics construction jobs just you know wrenching on stuff putting together things so I got a, a job in electronics and assembly which then turned to um, where did they go next their next um, shipping I went to the shipping department then I went to the receiving department which was believe it or not is an upgrade from shipping and then um, and then I went to planning um, and, um, or expediting and then planning and then, you know, changed companies a couple times, and then I ended up... So it was like all of a sudden, 10 years later, and I was yeah. a senior buyer buying sheet metal parts and machine parts right. and stuff that I had no passion about, and was really, you know, still a drummer the whole time, but my, my um, level of, um, you know, the consumption of my life was more from, from the, uh, the work day than it was, you know, my passion of playing drums. So in, that went to 1984, and at that point... Um, my now wife of many years, uh, we were living together and we decided, you know, I'm going to quit my job, we'll get married, and I'll go back to school and I'll become a drummer. That and, is quite something right. to offer. Yeah, her dad was thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, um, Karen told him, and yeah, we did. It was 1984, I quit my job, I went back to San Jose State, 
Um, at what age at this uh, point? I'm 28 now. I'm 10 years later after high school, yeah. And I just knew I was on the wrong road. And, and I didn't want to, you know, be, uh, you know, I turned 60 this month. And I didn't want to be this old knowing I never tried, you know what I right. mean? So, um, so I quit my job and, you know, went to school, uh, graduated in 89, because uh, that was 84. And, um, well, can I ask why San Jose State specifically? Consider there's some great other uh, music schools around. Oh yeah, no, I was I was like I want to go to Berkeley and Boston, and I want right. to do all these things, and I was like, oh, well, I can't afford that, you know. So um, back back then, late '80s, um, San Jose State was three hundred twenty five dollars a semester. Oh my then. god. I just graduated from San Jose State. And I wish I had those days. And I, I tell you what, you know, we were eating rice and beans and such, and, and uh, yeah, I, I was so broke one semester we had to charge that. <laughs> you know what I mean? So couldn't come up three hundred twenty five dollars. So so, but it was the best decision I've ever made in my life in terms of, in other words, in terms of getting on the right road to, to do what I, you know, being the actual me that I am. You know, I mean, I've always wanted to do this for a living, and and now I've been able to do this for, you know, that was like. I said, 84 was the last time I had a, you know, day gig, so to speak, right? I work a lot, you know, I'm, to today I spent some time teaching students and I'm heading off to a gig tonight and I'll be heading off a gig in the morning and I'm doing some mixing on somebody's project on Monday and then I'm doing mm-hmm. some teaching that night. So I'm a busy man, but it's all stuff that I love to do and talk about, you know. Friends of mine will ask me, you know, I, I, one of the things I do a fairly decent amount of is teach and help people, you know, move along in their drumming. And, and I've had other um, full-time musicians go, how can you teach that much? Well, and I'm like, I get paid to sit in a room and talk about what I love to do. Like, you know, yeah. what, what's wrong with this picture? I don't see anything, right? So, you know, so it's all good. Do you get some shit for teaching? Is that a thing? Uh, not, no, not, not, a, not across the board, but yeah. some people... Because I it's a very noble thing to do. Yeah. Well, although, understandably, there's some creative people who don't have patience for it. That's the ones. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'm talking about. They, they're like, man, I can't sit there and have little Johnny put his fingers <laughs> on the strings, you know, and do this and that. And I'm like, well, no, I have patience and I, and I enjoy it, you know. I, I As long as there's an honest effort, I, I take as long as you want to get it done. I'll help you along with it, you know. But And, and not all great musicians or artists or whatever uh, can explain what they do. I learned pretty quickly when I first started teaching that I had to know better. I had to know what I know better than I know it. Yeah. To be able to explain yeah, it. Yeah, really you know? master your craft. Yeah, yeah. So it really helps me, too, you know. So yeah. it's a good thing. Keeps you on your toes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Especially as, you know, I get students that have come along over the years and they're getting they're getting better and better. And I'm like, oh, I better, you know, mm. keep, keep, keep ahead of this kid. Yeah, um, and I'm, even the ones that are really, I feel like are going to do it, you know, they're going to make it. Um, I say that they they get good in spite of me, not because of me. You know, they're just right. they're, they're there to help them, you know, they're, they're, and... and Focus direction and give them some information, which is an important thing to know. I'm sure you understand that. At beginning, you always got to know the fundamentals. Right. There has to be a point where you have to develop your own voice, even in drumming, correct. your own style. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, and that's. I mean, that's especially in jazz. You know, you m- m- many people don't obtain that, but you know, you want to be able to um, have a, a distinct voice on a, on an instrument. So somebody you know starts playing a track, and they're like. That's Wally Schnelli playing drums, or that's whoever, right? You know that. And I feel that leads parts of your success for the most. I feel because, like I said, when I went to go see you live, mm-hmm. uh, it was the Wally Schnelli quintet. Right, right. It was the drummer on, on, on that poster board. Sure. And it's because they know who you are and your sound. Right, right. And it's uh, especially. I'm not sure about jazz, but I know blues because I'm more of a blues cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's like 
if you keep on doing blues covers, if you keep on uh, playing the tribute stuff, right. that's how you're gonna be known as always, as that right. guy who plays like Coltrane or that right. the guy that plays like BB King. Right. But if you're looking to develop your own uh, following, you really gotta develop your, your your sound. I think that, and why I, I um, you know, and as a working musician, both things those things are true. Like tonight, I'm gonna go play a blues gig. Um, the last Sunday I played with a great um, uh, uh, clarinetist and saxophonist, Eddie Daniels, who's now 75, but he's a piece of jazz history, and, and it was really a straight-ahead thing. And then I did a little symphonic thing, and I played a big band gig last week. But then I also have my own band, where I do my own compositions. And um, so to do those things in the covers and, and fit in the, in the boxes of stylistically and, and be able to work, that's, that's important you know, as a well-rounded musician, so I can pay my bills and do a lot of different things. But then as an artist, I think you need um, at least, there are many people have different creative DNA, DNAs, right? Uh, um, Twyla Tharp talks about that in her book. And they, um, the, the, for me, you know, some people achieving a level of artistry of interpretation, whether that's covering Stevie Ray gigs, you know, or 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 in a, in a, being in an orchestra and 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 serving the conductor and, and doing the uh, um, the whatever piece you're doing in the way that they're trying to present it, um, that's the, that's the end game. That's the pinnacle for them. And they feel. But for me, um, there's oh, I went back to school. Part of the reason was because I wanted to get better as a drummer so I could work. But also I wanted more tools about music because there's music in my head that I had no way to express to other musicians, get on a piece of paper and have, you know, have a, a, a performed. So comp composing for me is just as joyful and, and important as is playing a groove behind a, you know, whatever band. I, I love playing drums and I love composing. And so in my band, I get to bring those two things together and create a, um, you know, a, 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 a sound, a voice, um, a, a direction for me as an artist. And that's not even... A, um, I don't think something when you're truly creating you plan to do. Mm -hmm. um, now I can look back over my first CD came out in '96, uh, and and so I can look. You know, if you look up iTunes, I don't know. There's like 80 of my original tunes or something mm -hmm. over the CDs. You have you have nine CDs total, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I, I think <laughs> I, I prepared wrong. a bit. I think it's ten now. Ten now. Okay. Yeah, but 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 um. Yeah, so there, there's all those tunes, and if you look back, there is some compositional thread that weaves weaves its way through all those tunes, right? But it's not because I planned to 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 um, congeal this um, uh, formula that is the Wallace Noise Sound. It's just it is because the way I hear and think, and and um, and part of it where I end up down with the idiot, especially with the Idiot Fish CDs, the, the latest band. Um, it's it's called a fusion band, which was a word that you know people wanted to shy away from in the '80s and was not very you know didn't wasn't very heartfelt music. It was all just techno chops over you know jazz rock funk. Um, I, I embrace that to that name because um, it's really um, what jazz should be. It really you know the beginning of jazz was fusing a lot of diverse elements together to create this new thing, and that's what I'm still doing. And because I work as a sideman doing so many different things. I have a lot of interest in Afro-Cuban music and straight-ahead jazz and funk and, and, and blues. And so when I compose, um, it, it's, it, it, idiom is never, you know, in the list of priorities. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, what is this, where is this composition going? You know? Yeah. Now, a lot of people, a lot of musicians uh, sometimes are, 
in different tents. Some love to just read music mm-hmm. and play it, mm-hmm. and and they find that composing is a rather a hard thing to do. Right. And I feel you, you got to be in a, in a special mindset to really start composing your own music. So what's what's the creative process for you when you start composing your own music? Um, yeah. So. You know, Wayne Shorter, I think it's Wayne Shorter, <laughs> he, um, his famous quote is that um, uh, improvisation is composition sped up and composition is improvisation slowed down, right? You know, I dig that. Yeah, yeah, so it's the same thing, really. And and, and when you understand that, um, it's just then um, how can I get this, you know, then then if you slow down your improvisation so it becomes composition, then you got to document it so it can be re- recreated. But for me, the actual to ask answer your question more directly, you see, we're sitting in my studio, by the way, and you look around. The, I mentioned the organ. There's an acoustic bass. There's some basses. There's some guitars. There's keyboards behind us. There's percussion instruments. So all this stuff is inspiration, and I might start a composition on any one of these. Though you really probably don't want to ever hear me play a song on a guitar. <laughs> not that good. <laughs> it's not that good. But it, start, it starts like a, on a melody. It might be a melody. It might be a bass line. It might be a drum groove, right? Mm-hmm. And and uh, and it might be just something in my head. You know, when I'm driving along, I, I sing something to my iPhone, and I like, oh, that, you know, I got to remember that. Um, and then and then I use. Um, it's kind of like a sculptor, you know, um, starting off with something, um, uh, a rough image, and then kind of refining and refining. So I'll I'll I'll, I'll start to use Logic, um, the software, to to compose within, mm-hmm. and um, that gives me the ability to create bass lines and chords and, and guitar or horn parts or whatever, and then play along with them and see how that feels to me. And then like, oh, no, you know what? I need that to change, and 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 uh, um, the the groove would be much more fit with my drums if it was doing this or that, right? Yeah. So it's it could come from any direction, and and then occasionally. It, you know, in an afternoon, I've done something, but usually it's a you know many day, and maybe even week process. Like, where I'll come back to it and mold it, and you know, the the thing that gets them done is a deadline. <laughs> the the, um, the it's like you know um, when somebody once said the quote to me, you know. Um, when is a painting done? When the painter walks away from it, yeah. right? You know, because just keep... or when he's fed up with it. Yeah, or fed up with it. Yeah, yeah there's that too. Yeah. Um, so, so um, the uh, and sometimes, um, yes, yeah, sometimes it's just I I'll, like I we're as a, I'll step out the side of the studio door, and because all this other stuff can be too too much noise in my head. All this, you know thinking about theory and thinking about chords and thinking about um, the guitar or the bass or whatever and I'll just walk out the st- studio door and sing what it is I'm looking for and, th- and then come back and find it on the instrument you know so it becomes a much more organic process um, and th- you know and that's it's, it's been an interesting ride in terms of um, all these CDs we're talking about and becoming a band leader and, and composer and learning how to do that I mean when I f- I think the first time in college I was writing um, a piece of music and I'd written these chord changes. I thought they were really cool, you know, but I thought, this is, is this theoretically right? Or can I have somebody even solo over the top of this? And what, you know, it's it. So a friend of mine who's now passed away, Bo Kane, who was a bass player, um, I gave him the piece of music and I said, Bo, can you do this? You know, meaning, you know, because he was a bass player, he would know better than I. And um, he took the piece of paper and he turned it over face down on his lap and sat down and he looked me in the eye and he said, Walt, do you like the way it sounds? And I said, yeah, that's why I wrote it. He goes, well, then you can do it. And he gave it back to me and I just thought that was such a, like I learned all these things in college, but that was a powerful little moment for me. Yeah. Like, yes, I can. <laughs> yes, I can do that, right? Um, and then that also, 
it's bringing, I would bring in um, compositions to rehearsals when I bring musicians together when I first started doing this and be insecure about my harmonic knowledge and what I could do is that you know, with, with what and uh, people would be offering suggestions and often would make the music better and sometimes take the music where it wasn't what originally was in my head, you yeah. know. So I've learned over the years to, to um, take all the suggestions I can get but also keep the um, direction and um, concept that I had for that tune, you know, keep it strong in my head so we don't get... Um, veered off in course of, uh, I think I've, I continue to learn it's a never ending game right so so I think I've gotten to a place where I, I'm more confident about what I'm writing and you touched upon uh, one of the most challenging part about music about anything creative and that's insecurity yeah how do you compare the insecurity you had in the beginning to the insecurity you have now and how did you kind of plow right through them or do you feel they're on the same level well, no, I think, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I'm turning 60 this year, and so at some point you had to go, like, be cool with yourself, right? And, 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 and that's that, as, as the more experiences I have live, um, playing with other musicians and then playing my music, or me, um, you know, interpreting other people's music, I'm more confident. Um, you mentioned earlier that I kind of have a, have a sound, so I, I'm at an older um, place now where I can say, well, this is what I play like, you know, I hope you like this in your music, you know, although I'm sensitive to what they need in their music too, you know. Right. Um, when you're younger, you're like, oh, what do I need to be? You know what I mean? You know, you're trying to be, but this is what I am now, right? So and That's the hardest thing to really accept sometimes. Yeah, it's yeah. Accepting who you are as, as a musician. It's, it's like, Yeah, because I'm not right for every gig. Right. You know, I, I know that now, you know, in fact, man, I had a, this thing I mentioned with Eddie Daniels last week. Um, they, so they hired me, this San Jose Metropolitan Band, and the leader hired me because Eddie Daniels, famous sax player, clarinetist, coming to play, and he said the second half is going to be a jazz quartet, you know, with Eddie, and we need some jazz musicians. I'm like, cool, I can do that, you know. And then so he signed me up for the gig, and then a couple of weeks later he said, well, he's doing this 20-minute symphonic band piece, you know, and it turns out they need a better drummer in that than, you know, what's, we, we, we could use you in that, right? So yeah, cool. I can do that. You know, that felt seemed like something I could just say yes to. And then I got the music and started listening to it. And I haven't worked with a conductor in decades. And I'm like, the county's measures. And I'm like, oh my god, what have I done to myself? <laughs> right? so, so I was a little insecure going into that. But um, at the same time, I'm I, I've been through enough different experiences that I'm like, no, you know, do your homework, Wally, and show up and 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 you know, be attention attentive and. You know, the first read-throughs, watching the, the, the baton was a little, uh, what's going on here? And then um, and then by a couple rehearsals in, I was like, we got this, right? You know? yeah. Well, that's the thing, especially with jazz and, and fusion. It, it's such dense music that you got to find uh, a, a simplicity into its frequency mm-hmm. and latch on to that. Mm-hmm. That could lead to these other things. I think you mentioned that before. you got so many instruments. Sometimes you got to walk out of here yeah. and tune it. Yeah. Right, and then come back. And and for me, when I listen to jazz infusions, like at first I'm like, okay, what's going on? This is this is chaotic. Mm -hmm. And then you just gotta keep. And that's the thing, gotta be patient, keep listening, and then eventually you'll you'll catch on to like a certain certain beat. Like, all right, this is what's it about. Yeah. And then and then before you know it, you're really into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's my experience with the jazz, at least. No, that's good because that's what I tell people first when they say, "Ah, oh, just a bunch of noise coming at me" or whatever. Yeah. Um, first, get the you know there should be a pulse that if you can catch the groove, then you've you've got to hook in. Yeah. Um, then I think you know it's one of the reasons it's a challenged music in terms of audiences and such is that it takes a little more from the listener than you know um, you know uh, 
um, something more primal like a rap groove or, or you know a, a, a you know metal song that's just you know about the the uh, the, the, the groove and the energy you know the, the yeah. prim, more primal thing here you know once you understand the forms of the songs like how what the what the kind of the formula is going on um, and then you and then you you can um, once you get the groove you can start to watch the interaction of the musicians on stage that's where the real, it's like musical conversations going on quite often whether it's fusion or it's a um, uh, you know straight ahead thing or, or a, um, whatever the uh, the joy is that creation in the moment and um, you know the best jazz does have lots of conversations going on on stage in my opinion you know sometimes there's a very utilitarian rhythm section in the background and you know a singular voice or saxophone or something out front that's not very interactive with the rhythm section although playing the right music at the right time but but in terms of you know rhythm and density and energy and all that stuff um, um, but and which is more which is simpler for a non um, experienced jazz audience to accept right mm-hmm. but the real um, the real uh, joy for me is is seeing you know a sax player reacting to what the drummer did and the bass player reacting to what that that piano player did because the drummer did that you know and, mm-hmm. and just going to all that stuff happening on stage you know it's amazing yeah, which is interesting because, uh, uh, like in rock and roll, there's it's, there's always that fight between the drummer and the lead singer. Who's yeah. keeping time? Yeah, yeah. Who's in charge here? Yeah, yeah. In jazz, like you all got to be on the same page and you all got to collaborate and compromise once in a while. That's true. That's true. So, uh, how how can you best describe to those who are not familiar being in the pocket in a jazz quintet, uh, the, the way you communicate with another musician when it comes to soloing or when it comes to to going different timing beats and stuff like that. Yeah, well, so my first, when I'm playing with a, um, uh, say we're in a quartet, sax, guitar, um, bass, and drums, my first commitment is to the whole thing, right? But the, the, the team that I'm working with um, most closely is the bass player. Yeah. So, so um, uh, you know, in a, in a drum set, um, in a rock situation, like if you sing a rock beat, you think doom doom pop, doom doom pop, right? You're singing the bass drum and snare drum. That's where the timekeeping function is. If you sing a jazz beat, you sing right. You're singing a cymbal, so it's kind of a turns itself on its head. In rock, funk, and blues and stuff, I'm keeping the the person the main meat and potatoes of the beat are the bass drum and the uh, snare drum, and then I'm seizing that with the cymbals and the and the hi hat and such. In jazz, it's top down. The beat is in the cymbals, and then I'm seasoning with the bass drum and the snare drum. Wow! And so, what I'm trying to do is keep that ting, 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 with the walking bass line. Doom, 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 doom. So that those things got to be working together, right? Now we've built a solid foundation. Now the next thing I'm I'm um, committed to supporting is the form of the tune. Um, there's a million forms of tunes in in um, the, the jazz world, but Two most common are the 12-bar blues form, as you mentioned blues before. Um, that's pretty um, uh, common in jazz as well. And the what they call the standard American pop song form, which is A-A-B-A. Mm-hmm. It's a 32-bar song form. Most probably, you know, if you sing the Flintstones in your head, that's a 32-bar yeah. song, right? And, 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 and so once, when I'm playing, it may look like the jazz, we're just playing out and making everything up the moment. That rock-solid 32-bar form is just cycling over and over in our heads. And so I may be supporting that by what they call putting corners on the music. We get to bar 32 and little Philip, 
they hit, you know, hit one, everybody, everybody can feel that, yeah, we've made that, turned that corner on the next form. Um, you'd always want to make it obvious. Then beyond that, now I'm interacting with the soloist and the piano player, or guitar, did I say guitar player? <laughs> I don't know. But so if the guitar player is playing some comping rhythms behind the uh, sax player, um, I may want to augment those, embellish those, or answer them. He goes, dun, 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 dun. check, check. <laughs> right? I, might, I, beg, I give back the, the uh, two bits on that one. Um, soloist, and there's, you know, there is no rule book for this. The um, I remember as I was developing these skills. Oh, there never is a rule book. Yeah. Anybody who claims a rule book should stick it up you know where. Yeah, exactly. Well, I felt like when I was getting my chops together, I was like, okay, how do I use these things, right? If somebody give me the rule book, I know where to put it, right? You know, but you got to just experience and listen, right? And and then, so the sax players playing a solo, same thing. I could be um, kind of spurring them on to add more energy into the solo. I could be... Um, embellishing rhythms that are playing. They play a long note. That's a place where I could put a little fill. You know? And, um, or um, or they leave space. That means there's a lot of call and response in, in this. So there's this um, conversation going on. So my energy is going to, am I locked with the bass player? What's the form of the tune? What's the comper doing? What's the, I, here's the sax player. Oh, am I keeping the groove? Am I, you know, it's like all that. There's like all these... Um, multiple levels of uh, focus that need to go on to make it happen. Okay, wow. Now, I want to talk about, because I, I saw some YouTube videos of your performances. Mm. I, I did not see this when I saw you play jazz, but when you work with your, uh, is it uh, your Idiot Fish? Yeah, yeah. Is that your, your latest band? Yeah. You have a, uh, almost like a pedal thing with your laptop. Yeah, that's it's the laptop right here. And um, I've never seen that before. Nobody ever does. Nobody else does it. <laughs> so it's not common. No, no, no. So uh, are you putting special effects to your yeah, to your sound and, here? And and it's been, and those a lot of times are GoPro videos and other stuff. So you don't. It's it's not as audio is not as present as I'd like on some of those videos. But yeah. um, what I'm doing is I use um, some drum triggers on, on my uh, my snare drum and bass drum, which um, people. If, familiar with that term, um, know them to trigger MIDI sounds, which MIDI stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. And so I may be able, basically in that case, the drum trigger, which is a uh, piezo transducer, which is just basically a really lousy microphone. Uh-huh. It picks up the sound in a MIDI um, uh, interface, it's turned into a, a note number, signed to something on a keyboard that would that would sound make a sound right so it, it digitizes yeah I, but, in real time yeah but what i'm and that's not very expressive in my experience because it's just this one you get this one sound off of hitting it um the uh what i'm using them as as those lousy microphones um to run through what's something called a vocoder and a vocoder you've Everybody's heard the sound of it, of, of like a robotic voice coming through a keyboard or something like that. And what it does is I'm taking the sound and timbre of the snare drum through this lousy drum trigger microphone, sang it to an audio interface. Then in my computer, I might have um, a bass line, some spoken word, uh, a chord pattern cycling. And that's I'm, So I'm playing to a click track, so I stay lined up to it. And um, as this is cycling, you can't hear it until I hit the drum. And you hear wherever it is in the cycle when I hit the drum. But that's augmented by the fact that it doesn't just sound like the, 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 the chord loop I just said through. It's married with the sound of the snare drum. So in other words, 
if I have the same chord loop going around and I hit my bass drum trigger that's head into that chord, it's going to have a darker timbre. If I hit the snare drum, it's going to have a brighter timbre. If I hit the rim of the snare drum, it's metallic, it's going to have even brighter timbre. So how I hit the drum affects how that chord bass line spoken word is going to come out. Now, but that doesn't, the pedals on, this, on the left side, I have three pedals. One will turn the volume up and down on those things. Um, the second one will change the sustain of those things. So if I bring it all the way down, then I just get it. So if I push it up, I go, it'll when I hit. And the third one is a filter sweep, which changes the timbre from dark to bright of those those sounds. So often I'm, I'm putting my foot over the, um, the sustain and the filter at the same time and, and playing them kind of like a guitar player playing a wah-wah pedal um, on the stuff that I'm doing through the drums. Now, what influenced to go that route? Um, my first album in 1996 has, um, I think, five or six short little one-minute um, segues of me trying to do music from the drum set. Um, and the, uh, that was back in the MIDI triggering time that, that I spoke of earlier, and it was incredibly frustrating. <laughs> it didn't work well, and if you have something twice, or everything's out of sequence and all this stuff. So now, so it's been something, um, actually, even goes back further than that. I, um, 1975 or so, I saw one of the first Moog synthesizer drums. They had a drum that could hook up to the Mini Moog. And I was pretty excited that I, I was in a band that, you know, other guys had synthesizers and stuff, and that I was going to, the drums, be able to access this world of wild sounds, right? So I saw this thing, and it was what they call um, control voltage driven. So how hard you hit it changed the pitch. And I played with that. It was at a, it was a Percussive Art Society um, showing, and, and they, uh, um, it was in this little booth. And I tried for I don't know how long to get a nice steady pitch, like da 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 but every time I played, it was like, but it needed, it needed, it was just totally uncontrollable. I was like, oh, that'll never happen. So I was just crushed. Um, and then MIDI started in the 80s, and I just started to, to quest for that again. But yeah. it was frustrating, and un, frustratingly unreliable. And now this latest, um, I've got, you can see keyboards against the wall over there. I used to buy um, some keyboards that had vocoders in them um, to start to, to explore this possibility, but it became... You know, laborious to bring a rack of equipment and, and big keyboards, and you only have one keyboard per drum, right, to run a vocoder. Um, and um, finally, now I can get vocoder plugins and a small audio interface. Like we did a tour to China last year, and for that pedal board, my laptop, and the triggers and the audio interface, I was able to fit it all in my carry-on. Mm. So that I, because I, I didn't want to check it and then get to China and not have any equipment, right? So, right. so um, the the te the the uh, this, the technology has become more advanced, um, smaller and more reliable, and so I can run you know multiple vocoders and just on one lap laptop. So, so to answer your question, it's been a long journey, but it's been a, something that's always been in my composer's head um, since the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, now, these days the culture of drumming is kind of changing. Mm. Uh, it seems a lot of drummers, are, at least young drummers of my generation, are more either going the metal route, mm. the punk, or they're just picking up a laptop with drum machines. Have you noticed right. that, that trend? Um, well, yeah, I've, I've noticed that those two things exist, but um, 
I don't think that I would um, characterize the uh, the drumming community as that that polar thing. Um, a lot of amazing drumming happening in, in the metal community, you know, in in terms of the um, uh, physicality and and, uh, um, and independence and all that stuff. Um, and the laptop thing is is amazing. Um, I mean, here I'm talking about me using a laptop involved. And there are some points in that music where there's a loop going on at some drum estic mm. thing. So drum machines have soul after all. Um, yes. <laughs> they're, they're getting more soul. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, the, uh, um, but the, that, the, the, there's a whole vast, um, you know, Anderson Pack. The, 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 you know, do, you know, do you know that rapper drummer? that He's, he's just... Um, you know, it was like dominated for a Grammy, and it, I just shared a Facebook video of him playing some stuff. You know, amazing, amazing voice and drummer. Um, but then there's, you know, the, and this in the whole jazz and fusion world, there's a m- bunch of amazing drummers. In Cuba, there's a whole bunch of amazing drummers. Um, um, in, uh, you know, I, I think, I think, you know, what's one of the things that, uh, you know, we can say about the, you know, internet and free music creating, uh, you know, a lack of, of record. Um, uh, possibilities, you know, in recording companies, I mean, in record companies and people getting their music out there, but it also means there's a ton of people doing a lot of stuff that is, you know, have, they have access to the world, you know, through the internet. So, I mean, um, the, uh, I, I, I mean, we, when we shut down here, I could spend the next hour with you just showing you videos of amazing drummers doing all kinds of stuff mm-hmm. that is not in either of those, you know, the, uh, those, um, uh, boxes. Well, who are some drummers that you were growing up and that influenced you? When I was growing up, um, yeah. well, um, you, you kind of glossed over the, the you, past. Yeah, uh, we jumped to the fruit future. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. you know, um, um, uh, in the seventies, um, Billy Cobham was a big um, uh, influence. He, I, I became aware of him in Mahavishnu Orchestra, and then um, uh, he went off in the seventy three, seventy four, started doing his Billy own Cobb. thing. Miles, right, with Miles Davis. Uh, well, he worked with Miles on Bitches Brew. Yeah, um, but not many other. Uh, well, maybe Jack Johnson. I can't forget. But he, just just a few albums. He did. He did some stuff with him. Yeah, Pioneer Infusion, right? Exactly. Got yeah. it. Yeah, and uh, um, and then you know another guy that's back there in Pioneer Infusion back in the day. Jack DeJohnet was a big influence of mine. Um, it still is. And um, and but then I was also into progressive music. So. Bill Bruford was a was a big uh, you know progressive rock music that is um, was a big um, influence. What uh, band was he in? Um, he was in uh, yes yes yeah <laughs> interesting yeah. yeah and then he went on to do King Crimson who by the way I'm supposed to I'm going to go see next month they're coming with um, four drummers in their band. Yeah, I heard about that. <laughs> yeah, I heard that's yeah, crazy. Yeah. I, I, yeah. Well, I, I also heard who was it? Someone got inducted to the Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And they invited all three drummers. I forgot what band From it was. The past. Yeah. yeah, they weren't all in the same time. They were no. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember what it, what that is either. Yeah, but yeah, as, as it can, should, can you imagine playing a, in a band like that or a, a gig where it's not just you but like three other drummers? Um. Well, yeah. I mean, I've done. Yes, I can. And because um, if it was done like King Crimson, it'd be really fun because um, I saw them last time they toured and they had three drummers and. Uh, what was cool about it that can be like a lot of wasted energy you know because just three drummers jamming out um but they did it very compositionally like one drummer would be playing the whatever's grooves to specific to the tune 
Um, Gavin Harrison, the porcupine tree drummer, would also be doing more, some more complex melodic drumming over the top of it, and the other guy would be doing more like color stuff, you know, and then occasionally they'd all kick into the same thing, it'd be very powerful. And so it, was, it wasn't just, um, it wasn't taken lightly, it was, it was used, done the right way. It was very mm. cool. Yeah, yeah that would be fun, man. With, uh, with, with as long as the other drummers, um, you know, we, we, we agreed about the groove. <laughs> How about the police? Were you familiar with that drummer? I, I, yeah, Stuart Copeland, yeah. yeah. Um, that was, uh, you know, so um, he was he had a very distinctive sound. Um, and so he was, you know, more 80s uh, kind of guy, right? And um, um, I, um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, a fan of the, um, <laughs> how much should I say this? I'm a fan of the voice that he created. I'm not such a fan of his drumming. Interesting. <laughs> you know, he had a very distinctive voice and the splash cymbals and the, uh, you know, the ska punk thing he would do. But, you know, in terms of him, um, the, uh, the, uh, his technique and his, my respect for him as a drummer is not as high as some other guys. Hmm. Interesting. What, what are your influences now? Oh, now, um, well, I uh, mean, just I, 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 I try to bring listen to as much both compositionally and drumming as possible and guy, the guy that I'm really digging what he's doing now is um, Antonio Sanchez um, he's uh, he's came to fame working with famous guitarist Pat Metheny but he has his own bands and he leads his bands um, I saw him a couple of years ago at Cafe Stritch um, they needed a, he needed a 12 inch tom I loaned him my tom to play down there he did the soundtrack for Birdman, right? He did. Yes. yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. He goes out and does solo gigs by that. So he's a very creative cat. And you, you let him borrow your... your... A couple of times. Yeah. I, he borrowed a whole drum set a couple of years ago for... Uh, they played at the uh, where the comedy theater in downtown San Jose. Which improv? Was, yeah, yeah, the improv they played down there. Um, and then um, the last time we came, um, Cafe Stritch, um, they didn't have a, they had a little 10-inch tom instead of a 12-inch. He wanted a 12-inch, so I brought it down for him to use and... Um, the uh, actually brought the whole drum set, but I was just wanted to tom. tom. Are, but, are drummers territory when it comes to equipment? Because I know some guitarists are. Like, you know, no, nobody's touching my Stratocaster. Yeah, you know, there's some stuff I have I wouldn't loan out, and yeah. most of my stuff I don't loan out on a regular basis. But um, you know, it's a cat like that that I know is going to respect the equipment or whatever, you know, and and, and want to join watch him play my stuff. Right? <laughs> so that that's kind of cool. But I don't rent my stuff out and just loan it out generally. Because right. um, there's so many parts to worry about. I'm I'm sure like. A thing or two goes missing here. here and oh there. yeah, especially send a whole send a whole kid out, and then you know, um, I, you know, so I've loaned drums out, and then it comes back all tuned different. And well, who touched my baby? You know, it's just, it's just gotta get. It's not like, um, you know, I don't. Uh, there are just drums, but they're my drums. You know, it's like I, they are. They're they become friends. You know, right. so yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't hand them out. Have you given them names? No, no, I no. haven't. <laughs> I, I haven't. Although I do have. The um, first drum set, well, it's the second drum set I ever had. Um, first one was a cheap um, Japanese copy of a cheap Japanese drum set, and then and then the second one was this um, Sonar drum set I got in, which is a German company, um, and I got that in probably sixth or seventh grade, and um, I had that through high school, kept it all through the eighties, and when I went back to San Jose State, I was still playing that drum set. Um, it stripped it off, and then I sold it because I wanted a smaller jazz bass drum, and I uh, kind of regret it because that you know for that many years that was a friend of mine, right? Mm -hmm. And then um, I was at a jam session in San Jose several years ago, and uh, I was talking with Kevin Haguchi, a real fine local drummer, 
um, and uh, although he's not in the area, he's down south, Southern California now. Um, and we were talking about our first drum sets or whatever, and, you know, during the break. And, he go, and I was describing it, he goes, I know where that drum set is. And I went, what? And, and he said, no, really. He, he went to um, Santa Teresa High School, and he said, that drum set is at Santa Teresa, and we were using it in combos and stuff when I was going to school there. And so I knew the teacher over there, Julie Lons, Bounds, and so I contacted her, and it turned out it was my drum set. Um, and um, and I just, it is beat to, missing parts and beat to hell, and I just like, you know, old friend that's like laying in the gutter kind of, you know? Right, a lot of young kids are banging on it. Yeah, yeah. but that, that's the beauty of it, right? A lot yeah. of kids played it, you know, and came up on it, but... So I told her, man, I need to have that guy back. You know, I need to have that drum set back. So I, tr I, I got them a, a new snare drum for their band and traded her just the snare drum for the for the, my drum set. And I got it back, and I was going to fix it all, but I was like, really trashed. But so now it lives in my garage, but it but it's back home. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's not, within your grasp. It's with my grasp. I think I might make a light fixture out of it or something, <laughs> because it's not really playable anymore. <laughs> but it's, 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 it's where it started, you know, so I got, I got it back. Now, you're very much involved with the San Jose Jazz Festival. Um, I'm, it's with this jazz festival to a certain extent. I'm playing there, but I'm involved with San Jose Jazz as their summer jazz camp director. Mm. How, can you t talk about that, how you got involved with that, and how it progressed over the years to what it is now? Because it's a pretty big deal. Now, I remember back when I was young, it was like a free event. It was. Now, now it's a legit, you know, you got to buy tickets, you got some great acts coming. Yeah, so the, so I, I, I'm like sort of misspoken. So now I'm not that involved with the festival except for I'm playing. Um, but when it originated, um, which is over 25 years ago, um, I was involved with the very first handful. I don't know how I can't remember now how many I was involved with, but the very first one. So the very first one, they were going to have Dizzy Gillespie play in the convention center, um, San Jose Jazz Society. It was called back then. What year was this? Oh, got to be so. So this is what is this twenty seventh? Uh, uh, so it's like um, so. It's back in the early nineties or yeah, early nineties. Because it was right after I got out of college and I graduated eighty nine. In Gillespie with those big cheeks was coming yeah, he down. Yeah, he was going to play, and then it was trying to put it together at the convention center, but it turned out it was getting so close that it wasn't going to have time to um, to really even promote it and sell tickets. Right, so I started trying to do this. Decided to do this free thing in the park. And that became the first San Jose Jazz Festival, and so the first. And I can't can't tell. I can't even. Remind, I remember Brandon Fields playing. I remember. I can't remember what the lineup was, but um, I was just. I was working with Bruce Laverty. I was running around getting the liquor permits. I was getting the the um, off-duty police for for the uh, you know for the security. So you were involved a lot with the logistics and operations. In the beginning, yeah. And then I was a stage manager. And the first year, the backstage was my little blue Honda Civic parked behind that stage at uh, Cesar Chavez Park, and then we had some yellow tape around the trees to the corners of my car, and, and, and that back there, and that was the, uh, that was backstage, right, you know, and, and so that grew to some fencing the years after, and all that, um, so, and so for many years, for several years at the beginning, I was the stage manager at the main stage, and, uh, um, you know, I learned a lot, I met, got to lead, meet a lot of great musicians, and um, hang, but then it became, you know, well, no, I'd rather be playing than doing this, right? So I, I stayed involved with San Jose Jazz on several levels. I've been a clinician for it with them, um, going out in schools and doing stuff um, for uh, both um, in the classroom and in assemblies, explaining jazz to kids. And now I do a little bit of that of working with um, um, the 
doing clinics with jazz bands and running the summer jazz camp. Um, so it's been a, um, I've been, it's been a, an association I'm proud of over many years because it's been a lot of positive out of it. Now, it, it seems, uh, well, it's not, it doesn't seem, but can you describe the vision you had for you and, and the collective that you were involved in making the first San Jose Jazz Festival, the vision that you, that, that you guys were going for, and to what it is now? Are, yeah. are, are they on par to what you guys envisioned? Well, so, it, it, um, so my... So I was like, "Can I help?" You know, I was I wasn't really like you know like on the board with a with a vision. Though my vision, you know, of uh, bringing world class acts to San Jose and supporting the music, local community, um, that's that's kind of how I viewed it in the beginning, and, and still still do. Um, and you know, and just like all big festivals, that is has evolved into you know, funk night, blues stage. You know, um, it's 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 more of a and I and I and I kind of it's run by San Jose Jazz, but it's called Summerfest, which I think is a probably an appropriate thing because it's not just a jazz fest anymore, right? You yeah. know, so it's evolved and um, bringing people to downtown and and showing um, um, being able to uh, showcase a lot of artists that you wouldn't normally see around here, um, and to give some. Um, uh, uh, visibility to local artists deserving more uh, more of that I think it's a it's, it's a great thing mm. now I'm fairly new to the scene I want to say a couple of years now but it seems to me that the the San Jose jazz scene has grown mm. quite a lot but do you feel like San Jose always had jazz roots in it because I, I don't know about San Francisco and and Oakland these days but as far as I, I see more jazz acts popping up up here or down here, I should say. Yeah. To the South Bay. I think actually there's better places to play right now in the South Bay than there are in San Francisco. There used to be places in uh, on Broadway and such. You know, that, um, Pearls was a big one that have gone away, gone away due to rent increases and all that. Um, and and I've been doing it long enough that it's a cyclical thing, right? You know, it's like it comes and goes, and you know, it's, jazz clubs a hard thing to to make money in, right? You know, so there's got to be wisdom and uh, and, and a concept that beyond just we'll have a room in jazz, you know, right. it's got to grow. So, but uh, but um, the uh, I think jazz has been part of San Jose since like the Headley at the Deans Hotel. They have jazz on the weekends down in the lobby, um, which is a beautiful room. Um, but they, you know, in the seventies they had a room I I never saw a show there, but it's on the second floor where they used to have like you know. National acts would play their jazz guys. On top of Stretch? No. Oh, no. On Hotel Deanza. In the Hotel Deanza. Okay. And in the top of well, Ajax at the time, right? Well, before that, yeah. below um, the Ulipia, um, which is Stretch, um, they used to have a jazz acts back into the 70s. And then they turned up to upstairs at the Ulipia, which turned into Ajax, which I played there a bunch of times. And that would have great jazz acts. In fact, we mentioned Billy Cobham. Um, uh, I was given the honor of opening for Billy Cobham at Ajax one weekend, and then I also got a year after that, I guess it was or so, maybe two, I got to open for him at Cactus Club, <laughs> which was the rock club down the street, right? Um, so that South First Street was was a happening place, and and there these and so now Stretch exists down there, which right. so that's a pretty amazing building. Yeah, <laughs> there has some kismet involved with that building, I think, in jazz music and. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it, it definitely helps develop a jazz culture around here. 
Yeah. Which, which you know, me being a blues guy, I always thought San Jose should be more of a blues town considering the blue collar. Right. A, a lot of blue collar manufacturing. But I'm like, jazz is also pretty much blue collar if you get down to its essence. Yeah. You know, in a lot of ways, it, it's it's the sound of the streets as much as blues is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of blues in the jazz, which kind of jazz evolved out of that whole thing, right? Yeah. You know, so, yeah. And there's, there's a lot of blues, you know. There's, there's the, the poor house, there's little blues. I just there. discovered a whole side of blues of the South Bay that I, I feel dumb being ignorant about. I just discovered uh, a Little Lou's Barbecue. Yeah, yeah. Hot damn. Yeah, Little Lou's. They've got jams and a lot of people playing there. And, and of course, you've been to the poor house, right? Of course. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, the uh, and it's funny that, that I'm playing... Um, playing with a blues band, band tonight in San Ramon, but we played in Livermore last night, mm-hmm. um, and um, so yeah, there's um, you know, um, just uh, if you want to know where all the blues acts are, just go to Aki Kumar's web. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I just got to know the guy, yeah. and he blew my mind. Yeah, because for the for the longest time, I, I was kind of you know bitching about blues. I wish there was more blues, this and that. It was like in front of me the whole time. Just mostly it's in San Jose. Yeah. You got to really look for it to find it. True, yeah. You know, because I, I would stick to the dive bars and look for the blues bands, right, like, right. which is like Woodham's, which is one of my right. favorite dive bars yeah. to have blues at. And it's like, I just discovered this whole amazing, I was like, like you said, the best way to learn music is to go see them how they play. Yeah, yeah. So for me, it's like, oh, that's that's my new classroom right there. I hear you, yeah. Uh, but going back to uh, opening for Billy Cobham, how was that experience to to open up for for a hero of yours? It was, it was frightening and an honor and um, you know memorable and all kinds of stuff. The um, um, the uh, you know I met him. You know, like I mentioned that um, Bocane with that composition that gave me a quote about yeah you can do this well, and that was stuck stuck with me. Years ago, um, late seventies, he was playing, and my uncle who's a pattern maker, had helped me build a drum set, or he built it, and I helped him. Um, and um, and I felt some allegiance to my uncle to help him, like, get a gig out of this thing, you know, because he did it for me for free. And, and so I took one of the toms to the Great American Music Hall up in San Francisco when Billy Coffin was playing, and I wanted to show it to him, so maybe my uncle would get a gig out of it, right, you know. And so they let me go backstage with the tom and so I could show it to him. And it was this big, thick, black walnut shells that were weighed a ton. And and um, and I remember his road manager going, well, the air freight on those would be crazy. You know? and so, but so, the, but the point of the story was, Billy looked at him and he goes, he's going, oh, these are beautiful, you know? And, and he goes, can you play them? And I, my response to him was, um, well, not as good as you could, you know? And, and, and he, I, remember, I just remember him looking down the drum and he looked at me straight, square in the face and said, why not? And I just left with that in my head. Why not? Well, why not? You know, I got to work at this, right? You know, so it was a great inspiration. And then to be able to play for him, open for him many years later, I thought, I need to bring it, you know? And I, I remember how one of my great um, memories of that, the, the second time I did it, I, somebody told me he was checking me out at the first time, but it, when we played at the Cactus Club, across the room in the far left corner was kind of like the little green room area where, where people could hang. And um, I was playing a drum solo, and I was just like, you know, you know, letting it all hang out because I'm, you know, I'm on my little jazz kit in front of a, three bass drums and 57 toms, you know, Billy Cobham set. And then I said, I got to bring this. And so I'm playing solo, and I look up out of the corner of the eye, and I see the door's open to crack, and his head's poked out. He's watching, you know, like, <laughs> I tried not to get distracted to keep going for it, but I remember seeing that. You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> so so it's cool. It was an it was an honor, and um, you know, it would still be an honor to, to this day. But I would have to, you know, be a and, and at the um, I've I've been able to like at clinics and um, wherever else I've opened for um, you know Dennis Chambers and Steve Smith and Kenny Arnoff and all, uh, several you know people that are on a, on a you know on a, um, on a developmental level or just artistic level I respect you know that, that and, and so um, I've had enough of those experiences that I'm, that I'm cool with it yet though I still respect and honor the possibilities you know mm-hmm. tell me a bit about uh, your current band so that's yeah fish idiot, idiot right idiot fish, idiot fish. God, yeah. I'm sorry Idiot, idiot fish, fish. and idiot fish is a real fish. Yeah. It, so I saw it in an Asian market one time, and I had to look it up. And it was, and uh, and then uh, this band uh, was, I think, 2006 at the San Jose Jazz Festival. I was booked on the Jazz Beyond stage at, at doing something a little different and cutting edge. And so they were going to bill it just as Wally Schnally and Sabo or whatever. And so I called them back. I said I wanted it to be separate because I have many CDs out of fusion music that. Um, didn't involve this idea, so I wanted it to be separate. So I had just seen this idiot fish in the store, or whatever, and so I called back and said, "Call it idiot fish." <laughs> and so that was the first idiot fish gig, and um, and it and it it went through several um, instrumentation changes since then, and then um, I did a quartet gig um, with the current guitarist Christo Vichev, and um, who's an amazing guitarist, um, and. Joe Costantini was on bass, and amazing keyboard player Frank Martin. We did a gig at the um, Blackbird Tavern, you know, the um, ah. Spires' place, right? Then and it was great. And I was like, the band kicked butt, and I thought, okay, this is the band to record. So we recorded the first CD, did several gigs behind that, you know, as a quartet, and um, and then I set up a gig or a tour to Pacific Northwest, and I wanted to reduce the size of the band to make the tour work, <laughs> and. Uh, and I switched bass players to Dan Robbins from Santa Cruz because he's a great bass player and a kind of virtuoso soloist, right? And I thought with two other musicians, I need killer solos all around, <coughs> or just a, you know a strong trio. And and when we did the tree, the tour, it quickly became apparent to me that all that electronica laptop stuff that I was talking about previously, one of the um, challenges for the previous quartet was I get off stage and I'd be talking to people and, and I'd say, did you hear that stuff I was doing on the synthy stuff? And they're like, uh, what were you doing? Don't, I don't know. Did you, were you doing it? I don't know. <laughs> and and the, what, I, what I figured out was that with a keyboard player up there, they think all this keyboardy kind of stuff that's coming off the drum set, he's playing it, right? It's not me, right? He's taking your credit. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> and um, not purposely, but you know, by default. Yeah. So so um, when we did the trio gig, it was obvious that, well, there's nobody else on stage doing it. Yeah. It must be me. The keyboards had to go. Yeah. So, so and, you know, there was, a, and I would love to, in fact, I've actually, I haven't even said this out loud, but I'm, I'm working on some stuff. That's what I was working on the compositions over here. It's, um, I'd like to do... Um, and a larger ensemble idiot fish project where there's some horns and keyboard back back into it um but i think i would still only go out and tour as a trio so i want to write the tunes that they're augmented by horns and 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 keyboards and such but they still the core of the trio is 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 the band you know so um so it keeps and so so there i just let it out of the bag and it continues to evolve the uh, the concept of idiot fish but at the core of it is me turning the drum set into a harmonic and melodic drum set 
as well as percussive instrument, you know? Yeah. Now, I've like we mentioned before, as far as I know, you're the only drummer I know that has, that's doing this. Yeah, there's one, I mean, with the pedal board, I'm the only guy that knows that's doing that. There's one guy on the East Coast doing something a little wackier but similar, and his yeah. name is Zach Danziger, yeah. Do, how do you feel when, when, when they say uh, Schnally is a pioneer in that drumming set? Do, do you feel like there's some sense of responsibility with that? Well, well, I don't know whether anybody's saying that, but, but, but I'm saying that to you right now. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, can, can I as far as I, like I said, because you're you're just making great strides in, in the technology and right. fusing that with drumming, and it's amazing. And it looks like you're getting a lot of recognition from it. I mean, you, you're on tour, uh, and all this great stuff. It's funny. It's funny because I think, well, first on the pioneer thing, thank you for saying that, and and second. I'm guessing that most people that are pioneers don't consider themselves pioneers. Mm. They're just doing their thing, and in the, the rear of the mirror, may look like it, right? Right. Um, so, so, I, so that's I don't, you know, it's just this. Obviously, I've, like I said, I've been chasing it since the '80s. It's something that's just, you know, a passion of mine. Um, and then um, the getting recognition. Yes, I'm able to get recognition and. Um, uh, um, stand out um, for for the music I'm playing, and I'm, and I'm appreciative for every fought for gig. You know, they they don't just hand them to you usually, but it's a two edged sword because my music is different. It's fusion. It's a lot of odd meters. There's these new sounds happening. It doesn't fit into a, um, um, an easy box for a, a booking agents to book into. You know, look at the bulk of what happens at some place like the San Jose Jazz Fest or elsewhere. There. Similar to stuff that's um, going on already, even though each one has a distinctive voice and distinctive compositional style, they've kind of um, um, fit more easily in boxes than than I do. So, so that means that um, I have to, you know, wave my own flag a lot to get, get people mm-hmm. to, to open their ear to it and, and, and accept what's going on. Okay, I just got the sign that my laptop is is, is dying out. It's full. But that's okay because we reached the hour. Cool. We made it. Uh, what's some if if you quickly uh, if you don't mind, you see yourself at twenty six going back to San Jose State, going back to school. Mm. What's some more advice you would give yourself from one veteran drummer to someone who's going back into Just drumming? Doing that, you know. Here I'll give you the, the advice that um, that I followed myself then, and I give to students who think they're going to go to college to be like they take out lessons through high school. Think, yeah, I think being a musician will be fun. I'll do that. I'll go, you know, um, especially now when it's not $325 a semester, but they're going to come out with big debt, right? Right. Um, do it because it's your passion and you absolutely can't imagine yourself doing anything else. And then take it with that kind of seriousness that it is your life. The um, the Because that's what it was with me. I was in a place where... Um, this is not what I want to do with my life, you know. And and so, if you if you can, um, if you and it's hard for an eighteen year old or twenty year old or twenty five year old to really know that, right? But I guess I did. The um, but don't do it just because it looks like fun or an easy road. Do it because it's what you absolutely um, love to do, and you can't imagine doing anything else. Like if somebody asked a friend of my guitarist, you know, you're a full time musician. What are you going to do when you retire? You know, how are you going to things together because I already know what I'm going to do when I retire I'm already doing it you know, you know it's like why would I stop doing this right so if a kid can find that whether it's playing drums or it's um, art or it's um, software engineer whatever if that's what they really love to do then yeah go for it Wallace Schnally 
thank you again for my for, pleasure for talking to me. Thanks, man. And um, looking forward for your for your stuff. Cool. Which people can find at two different websites: idiotfish.net and itrhymes.com. Got it. Okay. Thank you once again. Thank you.